Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 182, and it's called Seatbelts and Snowflakes. And uh, in this episode, Seatbelts and Snowflakes. We're going to cover all sorts of ground. Uh, but first, I need to tell you a story because I think you're going to dig this story. A couple of years ago, a filmmaker named Andrew Morgan approached Kristen and I with an idea. He said he wanted to make a movie about my work, um, but he didn't know exactly what form it would take, but he wanted to start filming what I do. So obviously we had all sorts of questions and we went back and forth, but Kristen and I have tremendous respect for Andrew. And so uh, we agreed. So he started shooting uh, events and tours and interviews and Robcast. He would film me doing these episodes of the Robcast. And uh, I distinctly remember probably, I don't know, like a, like an, a year and a half into it, thinking, I, I wonder what ever happened to that movie that Andrew was making. Um, but then a couple of months ago, he sent me a trailer for the film that he's making. And he said he was on the home stretch and it was almost done. And then he was going to release it. <laughs> Which brings us to now. This past week, Andrew released the trailer to the film that he's made about my work. And on February 24th, he's going to premiere the film here in Los Angeles. The film is called The Heretic, and I haven't seen it. <laughs> Because obviously, Kristen and I had nothing to do with making it. Like, we had no creative control. We had no approval. We had no editing. Um, Andrew's made this film. There's a He's made a website, The Heretic Movie, where people can get information on it, where you can see the trailer. And then uh, there's going to be a premiere. And I'm going to go to the premiere and see it for the first time. And then um, Andrew said, well, if you're going to see it for the first time at the premiere, how about immediately following the screening, you come up front and then we'll ask you questions about what it was like to see the film for the first time. And then I said, but I'm going to have questions. I'm going to know why you included that and left out that. I'm assuming I'm going to have a bunch of questions. So um, after the screening, then we're going to like kind of interview each other. Um, and the reason why I'm telling you that is because Andrew just told me that they're releasing uh, a number of tickets for the general public, which is y'all, so that you all can come to the premiere. And honestly, if I'm going to see this film for the first time, I would love it if you came, because then we could all see it together, and that just sounds like a good time. Are you with me on this? So um, that's coming up, and you can go to that site and get everything you need to know about that, but man, if you were there, it would just be so much more fun. And speaking of you being there and having it be way more fun, I am headed to Texas in a couple of weeks. The Holy Shift Tour rolls on. Um, Pete Rollins is opening, and we've been to Tucson, Phoenix, San Diego, Santa Barbara. But now, in a couple of weeks, we're headed to Texas. We're doing two nights in Austin, then uh, Houston, then Dallas. We'll be at the Majestic, one of 
just an amazing, one of my favorite venues. And then we'll wrap up the Texas leg in San Antonio. And then there's lots more cities after that. But all of you Texas people, you are a loud, vocal, charming group. But you've made some noise over the past little while about when is a tour coming to Texas. And the answer is in a couple of weeks. And I'm so looking forward to seeing you there. So those are a few things that are going on. But now... We need to talk about seatbelts and snowflakes. So first, seatbelts, and then we'll get into snowflakes. So, seatbelts. In 1972, my parents had a yellow Ford Mustang convertible. And uh, I know you gearheads out there are like, whoa, that was a car. Yes, and it had these two seats in the front seat. Then there was an armrest between it. And when we would go down the road, I would ride on the armrest, which in our family we called the hump. <laughs> I would ride on the hump. You cannot say that sentence with a straight face. But we also later we had a Chevy Monza, and we had a there was a Cadillac, and there was a Delta eighty eight Oldsmobile, and there was a Caprice Classic station wagon with fake wood paneled siding, which is really just a sticker made to look like wood. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Um, but we would, as kids, there was always the who got to ride on the hump. This was normal. And I've talked to other people who were like, yeah, yeah, you sat in the front seat um, and you would go down the road sort of in that on that armrest between the two front seats. And this was totally normal. Now, when I sat on the hump, and that yellow Mustang, I was a human projectile waiting to happen, right? Like the slightest slamming of the brakes, and I would have been launched out the windshield um, who knows how far. And yet, kids rode like this in those days all the time. And then there... Uh, you first heard about new data and information that was coming out about car crashes, about injuries and even deaths. And then you started hearing stories about people who said that they'd lost a loved one, but if that loved one had been wearing a seatbelt, they probably would still be alive. And then uh, laws were passed that you had to wear a seatbelt, click it or ticket. And then it got to the point where when you get in your car, not only if you didn't put your seatbelt on, would your car make a, a grating, horrifically annoying noise. But now if you get in your car and you don't put the seatbelt on, you instantly have almost like a physiological reaction, right? Like, a wait, something's wrong here. I'm lacking something. Oh, yeah, my seatbelt. By the way, I had a relative who up until late 90s refused to wear a seatbelt. It's like, eh. And it was like, this, is a, this was a luminous, fantastic human being. Um, who it was like a running family joke that he just just really didn't see anything, any need for a seatbelt until I think it was the birth of his first child and suddenly he was wearing seatbelts. Now, here's why I find this fascinating. When I was riding around on the hump of the yellow Mustang, nobody even talked about the need for a seatbelt or having a kid like me strapped in. It was like completely unaware. It wasn't even on the radar. And something that was unaware in a relatively brief period of time 
became something that everybody did out of habit, and if you didn't do it, it felt unnatural. Something went from nobody even thought about it to everybody did it without even thinking. Imagine if I said to you, you know, when I think about riding on the hump, I mean, did my parents even love me? You'd be like, yeah, of course your parents loved you. Relax. And I'd say, but they let me ride on the hump. I could have gotten hurt. You would probably say, Rob, calm down. That was how everybody did it. That was normal. That was how everybody did it until they didn't. Now, let's go from 1972 to 2018. The question, of course, and some of you know exactly where I'm headed with this, is what are the things that we aren't even discussing right now, that we aren't even aware of, that are just how everybody does it, that our kids or our kids' kids are going to be like, you did what? (laughs) How? And nobody said anything? What will our grandchildren look back or look down upon that we right now aren't even discussing. So if we go back to seatbelts, how do things change? Apparently things change when something moves from unaware to aware. So data, facts, information, stories, listening, hearing, seeing, and then people begin to take first steps based on that, actions, And then you have the passage of time, which we'll get to in a minute, and eventually what was something no one was even noticing becomes a new normal. Now, the reason why I talk about this and bring up yellow Mustangs is it feels like we're living in the midst of a great waking up. Are you with me on this? It feels like we're living in a period of time when we're becoming aware of a number of things that have just been how it is. And there's almost like this collective spine being formed that's going, no, that that can't be how it is. It has to change. Like the light's coming on. You have injustice being exposed. You have patterns and systems of exploitation, harassment, and oppression being revealed. You have inequalities being called out. You have things that are flat out dangerous being exposed for what they are. And it's like a Vitamix of waking up and change. And so what I want to do is I want to offer a number of thoughts about how you stay grounded and centered when all of this is swirling around you. And I actually have seven thoughts Um, Because seven just seems like the right number for this. You know what I mean? Um, And it just turned out to be seven. Uh, So first off, number one, consciousness is the great mystery at the heart of the human experience. Not just consciousness like you can reflect on your life. What? How does that work? Not just consciousness as, wait, you can stand at a distance and, and reflect and analyze and ponder, but consciousness as... Why do some people wake up and others appear to stay asleep? Why do some see certain things 
and others don't. Why do some taste? And once you taste, you can't untaste. And once you see, you can't unsee. Why do some become dissatisfied? Why do some spot the injustice and another sees the same thing and not only doesn't see any problem with it, but seems to double down on preserving and protecting it, even if it's unjust, abusive, evil, uh, and furthers inequality at some level? How come some people go, it's not good enough, we got to be better? How come some seem to be able seem to bend their ear and hear the, the voice of the voiceless, those who need help, and others just skate on by. Consciousness and why some people become aware and some don't, some wake up and some seem to stay fast asleep, some become deeply dissatisfied with how it is and want more, bigger, wider, better, more expansive, and others like things nice and neat and black and white in the box. It is a great mystery. Take two alcoholics. And alcoholic A, her friends and family gather in her living room and they say to her with great love, we love you, but alcohol is ruining your life and you've said it and we see it and we'll do anything to help you get help. And alcoholic A says, oh my word, I'm so moved you would do this intervention, thank you. Can I go somewhere tonight and get help? And then alcoholic B, friends and family gather in her living room, very similar circumstances. Friends and family say, we love you. Alcohol is ruining your life. You've said it. We've seen it. We'll do anything to, to help you get help. But alcoholic B says, get out of my living room. Do you know what I, I'm sure you have seen this because you and perhaps you have people around you who continue to make choices. Um, and you, and, and you even had conversations with them where they're like, I realize this is the most destructive thing I could be doing, and yet they keep doing it. And, and you find yourself just beating your head against the wall. Like, why do they keep making these kinds of choices? Why do they stay stuck in these patterns? Or maybe you and your tribe, maybe those who you went to school with, those who you were raised with, those who you were part of a, a community with, um, you've seen something you can't unsee. And they continue on exactly as they always have. You know that thing when you run into somebody that you haven't seen in like 20 years and 17 seconds into the conversation, you find yourself thinking, oh, dear God, they're doing the same jokes. They have the same biases. Like they are quoting the same people that they were when we were 21, almost like you realize, I thought everybody got on the bus and went on the journey. You know what I'm talking about, right? It sort of blows your mind. Like, really? They, they, it's like they're still back there. Why do some see and follow it and take steps and change and grow and expand and others seem to have no interest in such things? And there's this great, there's these endless moments where Jesus, it's like he says to his disciples, okay, here's the deal. This is my version of it. Okay, here's the deal. I'm going to go talk to this crowd right here, and I'm going to tell them a group of things, and some of them are going to get it. The lights are going to come on. They're going to grasp it, and others are going to want to kill me. <laughs> it's almost as if Jesus says, it's like I'm going to go out and plant some seeds, and some of those seeds are going to fall 
on very fertile soil, and some of those seeds are going to fall on like rocky ground. It's as if Jesus says, I don't even understand it. Why some people, the seed takes root and others, it doesn't. And there's obviously different reasons. Uh, sometimes it's data. You get information you didn't have, and suddenly you're like, wait, what? The, I got to act on this. Sometimes you have an experience, a disruptive experience in which your current categories and labels simply don't work like they used to. Um, sometimes we get in enough pain that uh, we're, we're willing to change. Other people just seem to be curious, like they just, they're like students and they just keep following it where it takes them. They just have a hunger to explore, to discover. Uh, it's a Vitamix of causes, essentially. But consciousness is the great mystery at the heart of the human experience. And maybe, uh, maybe with the people closest to you, maybe with your family, with a, with a partner, with business associate, maybe you've lived this in a very, kids, parents, you're like, how come they don't see it? And the answer is, when you ask that question, you are, you have entered into one of the great mysteries at the heart of what it means to be human. Now, building on that, number two, you and I, we live, move, we work, and we relate within systems and institutions and neighborhoods and families and cultures and workplaces that generally have a center of gravity of consciousness. There's generally a way Sometimes explicitly stated and written, other times it's just below the surface and it's just a shared assumption about how things work, what's proper, what's appropriate, how we do things, how we see the world. It's the lens, the filter, the pair of glasses that everybody's wearing through which they view and then navigate their world. Now, a couple thoughts about centers of gravity. Give me five minutes on the playground eavesdropping on a group of parents of three and four-year-olds. Give us a couple of minutes and you and I will be able to figure out the center of gravity. It's the shared assumptions. It's the lens. Uh, you can pick this up quite quickly. Sometimes it's just anxieties. What people are anxious about shows you sort of how they see things. Like, wait, wait, your six-year-old hasn't learned Russian yet? Oh, Ah, man, your kid might end up in a van down by the river. <laughs> or, oh my word, you haven't, you, haven't, you haven't sent in your application to that private preschool yet? Well, I mean, what happens if your kid doesn't go to a really expensive private preschool? What's going to happen to them? Uh, we're in the second trimester of the pregnancy. That's not really on our radar. You, uh, you go to an office space and you listen in on how this particular group of people in this office, how they think about their work, how they think about their competitors, what kind of view they have of the industry that they're in, how they understand their role in the larger marketplace. You can I often identify essentially the center of gravity or obviously family systems. Uh, there is a way that we do things. And if you break from that, you become the prodigal, the black sheep, the one that we do not speak of. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, here's what's important to understand about systems. 
Systems and institutions generally bend towards their own self-preservation. Generally, systems and institutions, family systems, businesses, generally bend towards their own self-preservation and security. And so you get from your belonging safety, direction, guidance, reference points. Sometimes you get a paycheck. Sometimes you get love as long as you stay within that system. But if you at any point see beyond it or challenge it or no longer buy the party line, what you are then up against is a system that has oftentimes years of entrenched self-preservation. It's rigged to keep it the way that it is. Two thoughts about that. Number one, when you then see beyond or if you tasted something other than that, uh, the system will generally then have to discredit you. Um, whether you're the brother-in-law or Colin Kaepernick or the woman in the workplace who just says, no, I will not put up with that for one more minute. Um, systems bend towards their own self-preservation. And if you challenge the dominant center of gravity, the system will generally align itself around discrediting you because tremendous resources, time, energy has been invested in keeping this what it is. Now, the flip side of that is something may be big, entrenched, may have a legacy, it may have lots of money on the line, but the moment at which the horse and buggy reached peak horse and buggy technology, when the ride was the smoothest, when the upholstery was the most luxurious, when the horse and buggy had reached a new level of comfort and efficiency was the exact moment Henry Ford was in his garage experimenting with something called a car. <laughs> come on, come on. Uh, something may seem huge and it may seem too big to fail one day before it's upended by the new thing. And I'm speaking to all of you who you are in some system, some network, something that has a strong center of gravity and it pulls out the laser beams. It pulls out the big guns for anybody who resists it or speaks out against it. And you're thinking, I don't know if this thing, this thing is, I think it might crush me. It's important to remember historically that sometimes something may seem too big to fail and invincible. And a day, a week, a month, a year later, it is in shambles. You never know. Now, we'll come back to that in a second. Hang with me here. Let's go to number three then. Building on this. Your newfound insight, growth, maturity, discovery, enlightenment, and waking up may, be the ex may become the exact place of conflict with your tribe, system, and institution of origin. That was the most giant sentence I think I've ever said. So let me just say that again. <laughs> your newfound insight, information, growth, maturity, discovery, enlightenment, waking up 
may actually be the exact place of conflict with your tribe, system, or institution of origin. The exact moment when you go, wait, there's got to be some other way to do this. This is wrong. This is inefficient. This is unjust. This is harassment. This isn't smart. This isn't big enough, wide enough. It no longer fits in the box for me, so I can't pretend like the box is the sum total of the whole thing. The moment you have that realization and you in any way express it, the place where you are now most alive may be the exact point of conflict, condemnation, and judgment from whatever institution, system, family, etc. that you are a part of. There is a great paradox in this that you might be filled with wonder and awe and I see it in new ways. Yes, it's so much better, bigger, wider. The moment in which you are more alive than ever may be the exact moment when you feel the full weight of the system that you have previously been a part of. There is a paradox here. So when we experience resistance and denial from any system, it should not surprise us because systems are bent towards their own self-preservation. And when we find ourselves subsequently in the midst of the paradox of, man, the thing just got let out of the box and it's more mysterious and wonderful and beautiful and captivating and confusing and overwhelming but strangely intoxicating than ever might be the exact moment when you feel the full wrath of the tribe. Now, let me add to that. If you stay quiet or you don't act or you don't follow it where it leads or you aren't true to the new life that is welling up within you, a part of you may die and you subsequently may now become part of the problem. And the reason why I say that the number of people I have met who say to me, I love your books. I could just never say it because I would lose my job. Uh, uh, so, uh, I don't even know what to say. So sad. But if you stay quiet and you don't follow the new life that is welling up within you, if you taste, and you can't untaste, if you see and when you can't unsee, you deny those experiences. You are denying a part of your authentic experience and a part of you dies. You follow it. You step into it. Uh, but if it's new or it's not the norm or it deviates from the center of gravity, it may take you into conflict. It may take you into loneliness. And here's the thing. Welcome. Because you are now joining a long, long tradition. Yeah, there's a loneliness. All forward movement has an underbelly of loneliness because you find yourself thinking, why doesn't everybody see this? Why isn't this obvious? Uh, step one, 
Consciousness is the great mystery at the heart of the human experience. And when you find yourself thinking, why doesn't everybody see this? This is awesome. Why did everybody vote that way? What happened to them? What happened to their brains? What happened? If you find yourself thinking, why doesn't everybody see this? Because if everybody saw it, then it would not be new. It would not be progress. It would not be the future. It would simply be normal. Yeah. So a lot of people weren't taught this. A lot of people were taught, well, obey. Follow the rules. Be a good whatever it is, soldier, participant, member. And they weren't taught, if you actually stay alive and you keep going and you listen and you learn and you pay attention to the Christ wisdom present within you, guiding you, um, you may find yourself in conflict with the very systems and institutions that were once home and all you knew. So there is an underbelly of loneliness to all this because your newfound insight, growth, maturity, discovery, waking up and enlightenment may become the exact place of conflict, departure, and you may even need boundaries with what was once your closest tribe. Now, number four, let's keep going. Number four, your evolution is taking a while. <laughs> I love that one. My evolution is taking a while. Yeah, yeah, grace. We, we work out our faith, fear and trembling. Yeah, it takes a while. Two steps forward, one step back. Your evolution is taking a while. And the reason why I say that is perhaps you right now are seeing all of these new things being birthed, new awareness, new understanding, injustice is being called out, entrenched systems of power and exploitation are being called into question, and you're like, faster, 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 come on, you want the whole thing to change right now, politically, economically, uh, gender relations, sexually, whatever it is, and you're like, come on, come on, come on. It's important to remember your evolution, your change, your growth, your waking up is taking a while. And if, if every one of us as an individual, it's taking a while, and then you put millions of us together, it might take a while. <laughs> Are you with me on this? Yeah, yeah, it might take a while. It might take a while. And that's part of it. It doesn't mean you don't have anger. It doesn't mean you don't march. It doesn't mean you don't shake your fist. It doesn't mean you don't throw some stones here. But it's really, really important. Because imagine if how you feel when somebody says to you, get it together. Come on, what's your problem? Faster. Imagine when you feel condemnation and judgment on yourself for the ways in which you haven't yet arrived, whatever that means. So it's really, really, really important. Why don't things happen f faster? Because what's true of your own body as an individual is true of the body politic and the body plural. And so here's why I say this. It's really, really, really important. If you forget that your own waking up, your own history, your own unfolding maturity is taking a while, if you forget this, your enlightenment can easily become an obstacle to the enlightenment of others.
Come on. That's a big bulky sentence, but you feel me on that, right? And that is why my friends, in some weird way now you're seeing that the left is the new right. Anybody, anybody observing this? Before it was like, yeah, there's this one side that's like brittle and narrow and judgmental. But now it feels like, wait, it seems like in response to that, the group on the other side is becoming, there's, there's a group, there's a group within that group that's becoming brittle and judgmental and just as shrill. How many of you observed, it feels like there's fundamentalists on both sides. Um, anybody here, you have traditionally seen yourself as one side of the spectrum, but you have recently seen a critique of your own side that you agreed with um, from the other side. And you're like, wait, 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 what is happening here? What happens here is if you forget that change takes a while because your own growth and your spiritual path and your evolution and waking up and enlightenment is taking a while. If you forget this truth, you can easily become the kind of person who's simply pointing fingers at how much they don't get it. And now you may actually be in the way of them getting it because they're thinking, if that's what it means to get it, I don't want to get it. There's nothing interesting or compelling. I'm not, you think that's going to win me over? That attitude, that narrowness? You see this. Um, I mean, many people talk about all the hate on the internet, talk about Twitter, talk about this person reacting to this person, talk about this snowflake who can't handle basic truths, etc. You have to begin with the humility of your own evolution. Um, I have this new friend who is just, a, he is such a lovely human being. Um, he's probably late 30s, early 40s. And we were standing on the sidewalk the other day, and he said to me, he said, you realize, he said, I've been listening to the Robcast. He said, I have to listen to the episodes five or six times in a row. And he's so charming, and he's so, I can't even explain how compelling this guy is. But he said, you have to understand, I didn't come from a tradition that thought about any of these things, thought about the spiritual depth of life, that asked these sorts of questions, that wrestled with these big topics. He's like, I literally, and he put his hands like sort of one on either side of his head, and he just says, I, am, I haven't thought about this. I'm thinking about this stuff for the first time in my life. He's like, that's why I have to listen, and then I have to listen to it again. And he's like, five or six times in, it starts to sink in. Is that so beautiful? <sighs> Because he's us, he's all of us, he's me. The number of things that I have to listen to six times. This like seriously moves me, by the way. Uh, and what you're seeing right now, the bloated ego that is so quick to point out what's wrong with them and how stupid they are and how they're unable to deal with the facts. If you begin with your own unfolding path and you approach people in that humility, your deeply held convictions, 
your activism, you standing up and shining a light on injustice may actually be more compelling because it's possible to be right in the wrong way. It isn't just what you see and what you believe, it's how you hold it. And see, for many people, it's like, this is the truth. What's the problem? The problem is the truth when it's not held well and when you don't bear it with a particular spirit can become just another hammer. It's just another gun. It's just another clanging symbol. So as you think about change and how things change and the people who have most compelled you, they're rarely people who charge in with, I'm right, sit down and take notes, right? They're generally people who charge in and they've got an element of humility to them. They've seen something. You can feel it in their presence and being. They're deeply aware of their own path, how far they still have to go. And if you begin there, I may have traveled some distance, but I have a long way to go. That's now a proper view of the whole thing. And you will probably have way more people interested. Now, this, number four, flows into number five. Because you are tuned into this then, <clears throat> you affirm movement wherever you see it. Are you with me on this? You affirm movement wherever you see it. If it's from your side, the other side, that group, the people wearing that uniform, if you're serious about taking part in the great movements and change that have been unfolding for literally thousands and thousands and thousands of years, then you affirm movement wherever you see it and whatever tribal or group affiliations you have, the beautiful, positive movement that you see triumphs and transcends over that. Here's an example. Uh, my beloved friend Pete, Rowl Pete Holmes, one of my other Pete friends, Pete Holmes and I were doing a show at Largo, I think it was early, early last year, maybe a year ago, and uh, we had a whole thing worked up that we were going to do, and then... We're getting ready to go on, and Pete says, I have an idea. He says, it might be a terrible idea, but sometimes terrible ideas lead to good ideas, so I'm just going to pitch this terrible idea. And he said, let's scrap everything that we've prepared, and <laughs> let's go out with a piece of paper and a pen, and let's ask the crowd what they want us to talk about, and then we'll do the whole, and then we'll make that list, and then you and I will spontaneously do the whole show about that list of things they want us to talk about. <laughs> And that idea was so bad, it was good. You know what I mean? It's like if you walk around away from me, if you walk directly away from me and you keep walking, eventually you go around the planet and you'll come back to me. It was so bad that it was good. And we're like, let's do it. So we go out and we say to the crowd, okay, we scrapped everything we're going to do. You tell us what this show is and then we're going to make a huge list and we're going to do something with that. <laughs> and so people started shouting things out. And... <laughs> As you can imagine, people were shouting just the most random things ever. But I swear to you, somebody shouted. This is in a comedy music club here in West Hollywood. Somebody shouted out, white privilege. That's, somebody paid money to sit at a seat 
in a comedy music club on a whatever weekend night it was. And when they were told, hey, we will do the show about whatever words, somebody yelled out white privilege. Now, the reason why I point that out is I doubt 10 years ago if Pete and I had done that. I doubt anybody would have yelled white privilege, right? This phrase has sort of entered our communal lexicon. So you can read that as white people of privilege are out of it, don't get it, true in many ways, or you can read it a different way. Lots of us who grew up with incredible privilege and were so unaware of how the system was rigged in our favor. Lots of us are waking up, and of course we don't fully get it. Of course we're fumbling around, but I'm telling you what, millions of us are listening. We're listening in a different way. We're asking a whole new set of questions. We we feel things we didn't feel before. And if we go back to seatbelts, that's generally how it starts. You want huge change. You want whole systems to be restructured, to be more fair, more just, more equitable. You, you want the whole thing re-rigged so that massive movements generally start when people start listening and hearing and seeing what they were previously unaware of. And I... Uh, and I I remember that night thinking, we have so far to go. We have such a long, long path ahead of us. But it begins by affirming movement wherever you see it. If people are yelling out white privilege, which means it's something people are aware of, something people are talking about, it may not be a very big step, but it is a step. And in the largest of your person, what you do is you affirm movement wherever you see it. The ego loves to cling to the idea that it's ahead. The ego loves to form an identity around, I get it, And those other people don't, they're behind. Yeah, progressives often, when a progressive has a swollen ego, you need somebody to be the entrenched, repressed, conservative fundamentalist because then the progressive can cling to that as a new form of identity. But but when you are deeply attuned to the fact that your own evolution is taking a while, when you're moving in that kind of humility then you're listening, you're learning, you're asking questions, and you are affirming movement within yourself and others wherever you see it. Now, two more. Number six. It's really, 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 really important that we march, that we resist, that we organize, that we rally, that we sign up, that we speak out, But it's really important that we do all of this grounded in the transcendent dignity of our shared humanity. 
It's really, really important what you're plugged into, what you're grounded in. And what we're observing now, even with this phrase, snowflakes, which has sort of had a resurgent, which is the person who's easily offended, who never stops tweeting about how this person has crossed the line and offended them, is hyper-reactionary. The reason why this sort of rubs you wrong is the point is to be grounded in something way deeper, way stronger, something ancient, something way more transcendent than your own ego or feelings. It's not that that things aren't offensive. It's not that people don't say incredibly hurtful things. But imagine in the ancient tradition, it was understood that we're created in the image of God, that, that what we are interested in is something way deeper than your words or my feelings about your words. Imagine Martin Luther King complaining that somebody sent him and said a nasty thing about him on Twitter. <laughs> you just laugh at it because why was he so compelling? Because he's grounded in a transcendent, the transcendent dignity of our shared humanity. It's like a giant bass note under everything he was doing. And what's happened to much of our shared discourse right now, especially on social media, is it oftentimes feels like it's about nothing larger than just who's upset with who and who offended this person and who wasn't politically correct enough and not, no, I'm going to stand up, I'm going to make some noise, I'm going to resist, and I'm going to march because somebody somewhere, they're the sacred dignity of being a human being is under assault, and I am going to stand with them. This is why also, by the way, when people just seem to be angry with the president, and that's about as deep as it gets for them, um, you use your power not just to be against something, but to be for something. The people who really move, the people who really catalyze change, they're for something. It's not just, we, we have long lists of what they don't like, but we have a deep sense of what they're for. And that is what moves us. One more thought. In the Jesus tradition that I'm rooted in, history is headed somewhere. Yeah, history is headed somewhere. There's even a phrase throughout the scriptures called the day of the Lord which sounds like a, the day of the Lord. Uh, but what's interesting when you read about it is what the writers would always talk about it is a day. Um, they would often use phrases like judgment, but judgment in the scriptures um, means disclosure. That means the lights being turned on. So in the scriptures, there was endlessly, um, you, you endlessly find the writers talking about a coming day when all of the lights would be turned on when there would be disclosure and exposure, when everything would be made right. Uh, the Apostle Paul talked about a new humanity. I love that, that phrase. There, a, this is, there's a new humanity that's unfolding in our midst. And the reason why I say that is oftentimes underneath people's anxiety underneath their tweets, is this sense of fear 
that the whole thing is just unraveling and it's just spiraling out of control and the train's going off the tracks. Uh, but I find really interesting is the saints, the mystics, the sages, the gurus, the apostles, uh, all witnessed to a belief and a deeply held conviction that history is actually headed somewhere. So when there is a system of harassment, when men have been using their power to exploit, exploit and degrade women, and then somebody speaks out and the lights get turned on, of course, yes, of course, any movement into truth, any movement into holding people accountable, it's like the future rushing into the present. Yeah, it's not an aberration. It's not just a brief moment of somebody being held accountable before things veer back. No, it's a taste of what's coming. So are there setbacks? Yes. Is it feel, sometimes feel like two steps forward, nine steps back? Yes. Is it maddening? Yes. But to every one of you who find yourself losing hope, who finding the, find the resistance to your resistance so strong and so toxic and so entrenched, in the Jesus tradition, uh, love wins. In the Jesus tradition, all the lights get turned on. Everything gets made right. And so you do what you do with a quiet, base note confidence that when you speak up, when you call things into account, when you shine the light on things that need to have the light shined on them, you aren't some aberration. You aren't some problem to be dealt with. You are a messenger of what's coming, of the future. It is the future rushing into the present. It is heaven and earth coming together. And it is absolutely beautiful when that happens. So for everybody who has that sense like, wait, what's happening? Where is it going? Is the whole thing going to blow up? In, in the Jesus tradition, you begin with a calm sense of grounded confidence that this is actually headed somewhere, that change is possible, that there actually is an arc to the universe, and it's good. Yeah, Not a cheap, superficial, shiny, happy good, but like a deep, no, it's good. It's good. It goes somewhere really, really good. And that, of course, requires all sorts of faith. So there, my friends, seatbelts and snowflakes. Grace and peace be with you.